This morning, I'm going to unashamedly steal from my father. Pops. Pops is preaching through Revelation out there on the West Coast. And uh, they're ahead of us by a few weeks. Um, No, I'm not stealing all of his stuff. But if you want, you can check up on it. You know, you can listen ahead. Uh, And we don't agree on everything, actually, so it's kind of fun. (laughs) But... um, we agree on the important stuff. Anyway, uh, he, had a great, he had a great illustration. I thought that he, it was very helpful, especially as we come to the way the vision continues to develop and the way uh, God reveals uh, to John what's, what's going on. Remember, this, this entire experience for the apostle John is a vision. He's receiving this vision. It's like he goes on this visionary journey into heaven. So chapters five, uh, 4 and 5 is... Uh, you know, getting into the heavenly throne room and wow, and then, you know, who's worthy to, to take the scroll from the, the hand of the Father and seat it on the throne and there's nobody found worthy in all creation and it's the Lamb, uh, the Lamb who was slain is worthy and so, you know, we've, we've got all this unpacked. Well, remember, the, the vision as it continues, it's going to, you know, explain this is, this is what's going down. And um, we sometimes approach Revelation in the wrong way, okay? So this is what Pops did, and I thought it was really great. He said, the first wrong way you might come at Revelation is you might come at Revelation as an itinerary for the end times, like this. You ever go on a big trip with a big group of people? Some of you have gone to Israel with me, and, you know, when we do those trips, we have an itinerary. And the itinerary says, okay, this day, this is our first stop, this is our second stop, this is our third stop, you know, all that, boom, 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 these are the places we're going to see, and then we're going to come back to this hotel, and then we're going to, the next day, we're going to get up, we're going to go here, boom, 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 and it's just like laid out itinerary, okay? Some people mistakenly take the vision of Revelation, and like this morning, we're going to look at the seals being broken, six seals being broken in chapter six, and they, they mistakenly read it as an itinerary for the end times. That's not how it's laid out. We're going to see that very clearly this morning. That some of what is revealed in, in this vision uh, with regarding the seals specifically, we'll see those are obviously, they, they look at a lot of different things throughout time and history. Sometimes, I mean, generally speaking, we're moving forward, and we'll talk about that more as we get through the book, but it's not an itinerary, okay? It's not a strictly linear chronology. There's going to be clear repetition, right? So we're going to acknowledge that for what it is. And there's sometimes just summary statements. Take those for what they are. But then the other thing is, I don't know if you've ever been on a trip, but... Um, Lindsay and I, we were, uh, we were in Europe one time, like many, many years ago, and, uh, you know, we were young and dumb, and, uh, you know, you, you ever buy a souvenir book? And this is what happens when you're, especially when you're overseas, you, you buy a, a souvenir book, and, you know, I can't figure out euros to dollars, I don't care, but, you know, you, you're there, you're, I think it was at the Colosseum in Rome, and I paid what I'm sure was about a thousand percent too much for, you know, this souvenir book that was like, you know, 20 pages of like, uh, you know, glossy pictures of the Colosseum or something like that. And I don't know, at the moment, I don't know what it was, the magic of Roma, I don't know, but I was like, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> and like, you get home, you look at that thing, and, and you know, okay, maybe you look at the pictures and they give you like an emotional, you know, oh yeah, I remember being there and all that, but honestly, it wasn't that helpful, and I don't even know if I still have it. Okay, full disclosure, right? <laughs> Sometimes people come at Revelation like it's a souvenir book. Meaning this, okay, it's not strictly an itinerary. Well, in that case, then we can't even know what it means. And so there's no actual value to it other than it makes me feel different. And so they might view it as basically just a purely emotional exercise. Like read it, maybe it'll encourage you, but none of this is actually real. Okay, that's not going to work either. All right. Now, the third way we might come at Revelation, and I think this is the most helpful, is to look at it as a guidebook. On that same trip to Europe, we had purchased, I think it was for $20, Rick Steves Europe. This book changed my life, okay? It was not a little book, right? It's a solid 250 pages or whatever it is. And how does this guidebook work? It's, it's not arranged chronologically. It's arranged either alphabetically or geographically. And how do you use it? Well, as you're traveling around, you take the guidebook. This is before, like, cell phones and, like, you know, were easy to use overseas and all that, right? But so you take, you take the book around, and, oh, you're at Notre Dame. Okay, you find Notre Dame in the book, and it's like, oh, wow, this is all this is what I need to know. You go into a random church. You're looking at random painting uh, one million times if you're in Europe. That happens to you, okay? And so you're like, okay, what is the significance of this church? What's going on in this painting? 
What's, why, do, why am I here? Like, what's happening, right? And so you look at the guidebook, and the guidebook says, this is what's going on. This is, this, is, this is where this is. This is why you're here. This is what's going down. Revelation is like Rick Steves' guide to the last age. And by the last age, we mean this age. Because as it was written 2,000 years ago, and as those early churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches, right, they were going through situations that they needed encouragement, they needed instruction, God gave them this vision to help them navigate this age, the last age. But there's a sense in which it functions for all of us now as a guidebook to help us understand the experiences that we're going through. And yes, to look forward to some. Much of Revelation has not happened yet. Some of it we'll see already is happening. And as we think about that, we go, okay, well, wait a minute. God has something to say about this. And so you're going to go through an experience, and you might be able to use Revelation and say, okay, let's look back and let's see. What does God say about this particular circumstance? Especially the issues related to suffering. There's a focus in Revelation on God's judgment of evil and on his vindication of the church. Why? Because as we suffer, we may wonder, God, what are you doing? Where are you? And honestly, this morning, as we get into Revelation 6, that might be just a great entry point for you to just ask the question, have I been in a place in life where I've wondered, God, what is going on up there? Like, what, what, is, what are you doing? And as we face difficult and even heart-wrenching, right, uh, soul-shattering experiences that just bring us to our knees or maybe bring us to the end of ourselves, Revelation is designed to guide us in the midst of that time of hurt and suffering. We'll see how in just a minute. As we continue to unpack the details in the vision, remember that visions use signs and symbols. The signs and symbols represent real things, real events, real circumstances, okay? So they are, they're not subjective. You can't just say, oh, it means this. It means whatever I want it to mean. No, they have real, uh, you know, references in reality. So that, that's uh, the way visions work. It's not, however, security camera footage of the future, okay? So that's not what this is. So again, the signs are used to tell us something important about what's going to happen or what is happening, right? And help us to understand it. And so as we work through Revelation, we'll get used to that because that's the way we're going to be seeing signs and symbols the whole rest of the way. So every, every week, that's what we'll be dealing with. This morning in chapter 6, we come to the reality that the church is going to have to navigate some rough waters. And so, yes, we need the throne room vision of chapter 4 and 5, but that's not all. We need to know what's going on when the seals are broken. So let's get into the details here in chapter 6. Now, remember, we are still in the throne room with the Apostle John. And he's there, of course, the, the thrones in the center with the lamb and then all the angelic hierarchies around him like we've, we've seen in the last few weeks. So watch verse 6, the last, or chapter 6. The last thing that happened was the lamb took the, the uh, scroll and then there was a song of worship in response. And then in verse 1, John writes this, Then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked. And there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Now, if you pause here, we're going to get the breaking of these seals in chapter 6. We're going to get six of the seven in chapter 6, okay? The breaking of the seals is the, the beginning of the opening of the scroll. Remember, I, we talked about um, last time that the scroll is essentially God's, God's will for the universe, so when is it all going to be made right? When is it all going to be settled? When is all this stuff going to go down? Well, that's the scroll. The scroll is the God's ordained will for the universe. And who can bring it to pass? Who can make uh, what's wrong right? Who can actually settle the debts? Who can actually, you know, restore creation? Well, it's only the lamb who was slain. So now we have the, the seals are starting to be broken. So th this is the beginning of the process. And we really don't want to push it too much farther than that, other than to, than to say, here we go. And so now we get the first of what have traditionally been called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So we just use that title because it's, uh, it's kind of embedded in our, our cultural vocabulary at this point. But the first horse and rider are probably the hardest to identify. Because we have a white horse, and the rider is holding a bow and, and has a crown. So the question is, 
<coughs> excuse me, what are we talking about here? Because in Revelation 19, Jesus rides a white horse and has a crown. So many, many people have thought, oh, maybe this is Jesus. Maybe this is Jesus, like, delivering uh, the gospel to the world, and that's what's being presented here. And while that is a possibility, I don't think it's quite as likely as the other option, which is this is a representative of governments and political authority who have been given authority, and Jesus is actually the one granting authority in the vision, I think, so that makes more sense. Um, But what are these governments doing? Well, they're conquering. In fact, they're conquering with the white horse, which may indicate that they are conquering through deception. Some commentators think this is the Antichrist. Maybe. I think it's probably more generally a picture of, again, government, right? Political power, military and political power being used, and being used in a deceptive way to convince people that government and political authority is basically where they should put all of their trust, all their faith. And so there's a deceptive nature. Now, we're going to see more of this deception later on with the beast as we get on into the rest of Revelation. But for now, I think it's important just to acknowledge that, that heaven grants this authority to the rider. And so, yes, he's granted a crown temporarily, goes out in order to conquer. And now the seven churches in Revelation, they knew who this was. In their experience, it was the Roman Empire. They were living under their thumb. They were, they were experiencing a corrupt government. And we have a hard time understanding that here in the United States, what a corrupt government might be like. <clears throat> I'm winking. Can you see it? All right, there we go. I mean, that's where this picture, it's, it's general enough, and certainly they had experienced something similar to this, uh, assuming that's what it's referring to, right? That we know, you know what? The church in all places, in all times, has experienced a degree of corruption in the government and even deceit from those who are in power. So that, that's a thing. And what's going on here? Well, it's actually the lamb who's calling forth these riders. It's the Lamb who's breaking the seals. So none of this is happening outside of the sovereignty of God. Watch the second horseman, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, given orders. And then another horse went out, a fiery red one. And its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. This is clearly a reference to warfare and conflict, possibly interpersonal, certainly uh, between tribes and nations. This is war. But the fact is, we could go all the way back to Genesis 4 and find this, where because of sin, peace is taken from the earth. The, The seven churches of Revelation, they had experienced this. They had lived through tumultuous times. Again, as the Roman Empire expanded, there was a lot of warfare going on. They no doubt had experienced it interpersonally. And it's funny, you know, we don't, you know, we don't always know, we almost never know the current events that we're going to be facing as we go through certain passages and books. But when, we, when I selected Revelation, when we worked with the elders to get the preaching schedule right and all of that, we didn't know that Ukraine was going to be a thing going on right now. And yet here we are living in a time when war is on everybody's mind. It's the number one news topic at the moment. Again, You may not have a personal connection to the war in Ukraine, but I know you have a personal connection to conflict and peace being taken from you in a certain situation. Remember, it was, it's uh, the living creature calling out on behalf of the one on the throne saying, come, second rider, come. And the third horseman, verse 5, the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, come. Again, orders coming from heaven. And I looked, and there was a black horse, and its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the oil and the wine. Uh, Denarius is ridiculous cost for a quart of wheat. Can I get an amen? Just take my word for it, okay? An entire day's wage for a tiny little bit of wheat? No. This is about inflation. And again, like three weeks ago, I might have had to explain that more. But we've all experienced the joy of inflation at the, at the gas station, haven't we? This is economic 
trial, economic difficulty, economic catastrophe. And so here, the churches, the seven churches, experienced some of that. Church throughout time has experienced times of famine and difficulty and hardship. And indeed, even we have, in a very, to a very small degree. Verse 7, the fourth writer. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked. There was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now, if we pause here, the fourth rider, the fourth seal here, is likely a summary of the other three. What is the net result of sin and brokenness in the world? It's death. And so, abusive governments lead to death. And war and conflict lead to death. And even economic catastrophe often leads to death. People can't find food when people are at war over the, the shortage of food or resources, whatever it might be. And this, this acknowledgement here, right, in the vision of this fourth rider says, yes, death is a problem. But don't miss it, right? God is sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over evil. And yes, death has been a part of the world since sin entered the world. And why does the church need to know this? Because you're going to need this part of the guidebook at a certain point in your life. You're going to need it when governments abuse their people. You're going to need to go to that, to that part of the guidebook and go, wait a minute, okay, what's going on here? You're going to need it when you face economic catastrophe. And you're going to need it. What, what's going on here? You're going to need it when conflict rears its ugly head in your life. You're going to need to go to the guidebook. You're going to need it when someone you love dies, when an untimely death occurs, or even when you face those last days of your life. And what's being said about the four writers? They are summoned from the throne room of heaven, and ultimately, although they are tragic, and sin is wrong, and suffering is a function of sin, and evil is wrong, right? Although that's all true, none of that exists outside of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over it. And so, in many ways, these first uh, four seals, they really function to describe, I think, um, suffering in the world between, really, uh, the garden, perhaps, and uh, the return of Christ, it's a way for us to understand, well, this is what's going on. This is the reality of what's going on in, in the world when I'm facing difficult circumstances. This is happening. God is not ignorant of it. In fact, he has a purpose in it. Now, we have to be careful here. We want to say it very clearly that God does not cause evil. He's not the moral agent who chooses evil, but he does ordain evil and permits it for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Let me say that one more time, just to give you a way to kind of grab onto it, okay? So God doesn't cause evil. He doesn't, he doesn't himself choose evil in one sense. But on, the, but on the other hand, God is certainly sovereign over it, and he ordains it to accomplish something good. So remember when Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, he's confronting his brothers again uh, over the deal with, the, with his dad. Or the brothers actually are worried that he's going to take revenge and kill him. And, uh, and Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They had chosen the evil, but God ordained that evil. He commandeered it. He purposed it for a good end. That is a little snapshot, and it's a way for us to understand all evil. That yes, people choose to do horrible things. And yes, because of sin, suffering is in the world, and governments abuse, and economic tragedies happen, and wars break out, and people die when they shouldn't die. But under all of that, we can be confident that ultimately, God is sovereign, that he's at work. The church needs to know this because guess what? We're not immune to general suffering in the world. There is a false theology, and man, it is getting, they're selling books like crazy right now that teaches this. It says, if you become a Christian, you won't suffer. I don't know how they sell these books. 
Like, like they're chanting a mantra. Like if they just chant it, it's like it's, it'll be, make it true. If they say it with a nice enough suit on, it makes it true. Like, no. I mean, if anything, Revelation, I mean, this is not the only place. This is all throughout the Scripture, right? But anything, Revelation says, buckle up, buddy. Because, yes, we love Jesus and His grace is sufficient for us, but that does not mean that death will not touch you. It does not mean that economic difficulty won't hit you. It doesn't mean that an abusive government can't cause you a whole lot of problems. And it doesn't mean that you'll be immune from conflict. So what are we supposed to think? We're there. We open the guidebook. What are we doing? Oh, you know what, though? The lamb is worthy. It's under his orders that that the angels are saying, come, come, come to these horsemen. Have you suffered? Have you been taken advantage of? Have you been abused? Have you experienced injustice? You need to know that you're not off the map. That you're not outside of God's care. You need to know that it's not divine vengeance for some failing in your life, some tit for tat where you did this so this happened to you. No. But you need to know that even though this is a very broken world, that God is still reigning. Now, these four horsemen and the circumstances described here, they do track pretty well with what Jesus describes in Matthew 24 as far as the circumstances that are going to continue to get worse up until the end. And so there's a general progression there that we might see. But again, we don't want to take it too strictly in in a chronological sense. Who's calling the horsemen? It's Jesus. Now, God's sovereignty over these four horsemen helps us in two ways, at least two ways. There are more, I'm sure. I'm just going to give you two this morning. Why does it matter? Well, first of all, God's sovereignty over sin, suffering, and evil, it helps us because it it teaches us that suffering is part of our sanctification. You you just got to know that your suffering is never random. In many ways, Revelation is, is a vision for the hurting church. And God says to those who are hurting, he says, I'm still reigning. And yes, I know that so-and-so died. And yes, I know that so-and-so was imprisoned. And yes, I know that the famine came. And that meant you lost your job. And I know that the war hit that region. And so that meant total upheaval of everything. And all, I, yes, God says, I know. But I'm, I'm still sovereign and I'm still at work. And so our suffering is part of our sanctification. It is never random. And there's comfort there for us in that. It doesn't make it easy, necessarily. But it is meant to comfort us and and stoke the fire of our faith. Secondly, God's sovereignty helps us in two ways, right? First, our suffering is part of our sanctification. But secondly, we learn from this vision uh, with the first four seals here that the consequences of sin are, generally speaking, the first installment of God's judgment of sin, that there's a general truth here. This is reflected in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to like 32, right? So that part of Romans 1, we learn that in some senses, God releases sinners and lets them uh, reap what they have sown, so to speak. And part of sinners reaping what they have sown generally is a pretty broken world. When sinners sin, bad stuff happen, and the church is not immune to that. We are rubbing shoulders in the world with sinners, and frankly, sometimes we sin. And so, yes, we, there's all this brokenness all around us, and generally speaking, that is uh, the first installment, you might say, of, of natural judgment for sin. Now, this is building up to ultimate judgment, which we'll talk about that here at the end of chapter 6, so don't worry, we're going to get there. But two ways God's sovereignty helps us. First of all, it tells us our suffering is part of our sanctification, and secondly, that sin, uh, that, that the consequences of sin are a result of ultimately God uh, judging sin. Now, when we experience this, what should we think? Well, I would just say it this way. We need to remember, when we're suffering, we need to remember that history is held in the nail-pierced hand of the Lamb, that He's got it. And it might not be pleasant at that moment, but he's got it. And he's at work. So this requires the longer view. So we have to buckle up. Watch verse 9, the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. If we pause just at verse 9, this is interesting. This is the first little hint we get that the throne room of heaven is actually a temple. And we said, well, yeah, we read Hebrews. We know that. But here's the reality. In the vision, this is the first little hint we've gotten of that. So, okay, the, the throne room of heaven is also a temple, and there's an altar there. And this is probably like the altar of incense, not to push it too far. But at, at this altar, under the altar, we have the souls of those who have been slaughtered because of the word of God. These are martyrs. And so in the vision, it's like in the throne room of heaven, in this, temp, in this uh, temple scene, there's a, a special place there for those who have died because of their faith. Notice the wording again in verse 9. They had, they had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. Again, seven churches, not all of them had had martyrs in them, but some of them had. And so they knew people, or they knew people that knew people who had died because they were Christians. And the fact is, all throughout the history of the church, this has been happening, where people have been called to testify, that is to say, to bear witness to Jesus' goodness by staying faithful to the point of imprisonment and even death. And I would love to sit here and tell you that this does not happen today, Brothers and sisters, it happens today. It doesn't happen in our culture often or very visibly, but it is happening in the world today, right now in 2022. This is a thing. And so here, in the, the fifth seal is broken, and we've got the, these souls under the altar, and they've been slaughtered. And in verse 10, what do they do? They cry out. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Those who live on the earth, that is a technical term in Revelation for uh, humans who refuse to submit to God. They are living in persistent rebellion against God, okay? Unbelievers. And so here in, in, in the throne room of heaven, in the temple scene right there in the throne room, John sees these souls under the altar, and then he hears them cry out with a loud voice. And what are they saying? How long? Lord, Lord, you're holy and true. So how long do we have to wait for our blood to mean something? How long do we have to wait for the vindication of our sacrifice? How long do we have to wait until the world will know that we didn't lose, we won? How long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? How long until this wrong is made right? And so we have, so these are, again, the souls of those who have been martyred, but underneath that, a big umbrella. That's like the pinnacle of unjust suffering, right, in the world, that followers of Jesus are killed because of their faith. And under that umbrella, we could, we could I think, tuck in all circumstances of suffering and injustice. All the wrongs. And what, is, what happens? What does he see? Verse 11. So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Okay, this is where it gets real. Because you're reading along and you're going, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, whatever. Okay, this is, this is weird stuff, Pastor Ryan. Okay, yeah, Revelation is hard. And then you read along and you're going, Okay, the martyrs are waiting for justice. That makes sense. Okay, and they're told, they're given white robes that symbolize righteousness and victory. So they haven't, they're not losers. Those that have died for their faith, they're winners. They've won. And what are they, they, how long, O oh Lord? Well, they don't get a straight answer there, but God just says, okay, but uh, just rest a little while longer. So they're not frustrated. They're not, they're not in angst. They're at rest. Rest and wait a little while longer. Okay, wait for the time. Well, what needs to happen? What's left? Okay, what's the next step? This is, what we can't, this is why we're doing Revelation, right? Let's find out. Is, is it when Putin invades? Like, what are we going to, like, is that when? Like, tell me when. And he says, okay, let me tell you when. Here's when it's going to happen. Until, rest until the number would be completed. The number of days? No. Nope. Number of churches? No. The number of martyrs. Their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now listen, I don't want you to get too distracted by the math here, but 
this means that this is still going on today. And so, right now, the souls of those who died for their faith are resting a little while longer. What is yet to happen? There are more brothers and sisters who will love not their life and will give it up for the Lord Jesus. There's no way the people in the seven churches who originally read Revelation did not see this for what it is, a call to get ready to give it all. You want to know what you're supposed to do with this passage, with this vision? This whole vision is designed, chapter 6 specifically, chapter 6 is designed to get you ready to give it all. You're going to go through tough times. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through uh, difficult circumstances. Yes, you're going to get wronged. You're going to get abused. You're going to get taken advantage of. There's going to be really hard things. And there are going to, there's going to be a moment, perhaps, when you might have to choose, do I stay faithful to Jesus or do I do the easier thing? And in some places in the world today, that choice may mean risking death. And so... If you're a Christian and you read verse 11, you know that it is possible that you could be one of that number. Now listen, this does not sit well in our culture. American Christians do not like thinking about this. We like the easy road. We like the like air-conditioned uh, version of Christianity. Where it's like smooth sailing. It's drive through easy. Okay? It's convenient. And it's not wrong to want to be at peace and at rest and to have comfort on the one hand. On the other hand, it is wrong to love comfort more than we love Jesus. And so we have to get ready to give it all. How long? You know, sometimes we go on long trips in the van. And uh, I think of Revelation a lot when I'm in that that situation. And uh, sometimes my offspring, you know, they'll ask... And, like, we have the GPS now. It's not like it was back in the 50s when we would do it, right? Because it's like we would ask Dad how long, and only he knew. And the truth is, he didn't know either, right? Can I get an amen? Like, back in those days. But now it's like we've got the thing up there, and they can see it. Like, it's on the thing. How, but they still ask, how long? And I always say, like, I always say, five minutes. I always, it doesn't matter. We just left. We're driving to Hilton Head 14 hours, like, five minutes. And it's not an answer, right? Five minutes means, <clears throat> listen. It's a set amount of time. We're not going to be driving forever, but just you got other things you need to worry about. The souls under the altar cry out, how long? And the Lord basically says, five minutes. It's not an indefinite amount of time. There will be a day when wrongs are made right. There will be a day when, when I will take vengeance on those who have died unjustly, God says. That day is coming. So it's not an indefinite road trip, okay? But, but, right now, what you need to focus on, dear brother or sister, is are you ready to give it all? Are you ready to give it all? Because there are more yet who need to testify. You know, we, we just, we don't live in a day where we're comfortable with with that kind of sacrifice. And I just think we're poorer for, for that as a, as a church. My friend John Owen, I tell you about him a lot. Um, you know, he, he lived through like the worst time. I mean, this guy, he was born at the right time, which was the wrong time. Um, he lived in England in the 1600s, mid-1600s. He was a, man, a, a magnificent mind and, and just a wonderful Christ-honoring scholar, um, he and a bunch of the uh, Christians, uh, Protestants in his time in England, they thought it was in their best interest to politically set up a Protestant republic in England. And so they actually did that. And it was not, it didn't, it didn't go well. They actually did set it up, and it was kind of a disaster. And so then it collapsed. The monarchy was restored in 1660. As a result of that, this guy, uh, John Owen, um, who was mostly a, a professional scholar. Um, so he, he suffered immensely because he had put all his chips in this basket of this Protestant Republic, and the whole thing went down in flames. But when that thing went down in flames, this is the 1600s, right? So when that thing went down in flames, um, his friends, many of them, were executed. 
You know what they did with the bodies? They, they put them on poles all around London so that John Owen, when he would be walking in to town, going from A to B, he would see the rotting carcass of a faithful brother. And it was meant to be a deterrent, obviously, to those who might think to follow their example. But, I mean, it, it just... It, it, it just, it was a, a daily reminder that this is what it might cost you. And the truth is, I don't think John Owen was worse for that. I actually think he was better for that. 1684, he died, and, you know, he's, he's writing to a, a close friend, and he's basically telling him, I don't have anything. Like, I got, there's no career. His career was sabotaged, so he had no career. He couldn't function in the state church, and nor really should he have, I don't think, at that point. So all he had done was invested in some local independent churches, like church plants, basically, that didn't look like much at the time. And he's like, I, all I can do is just love and pray. And one commentator, he said it so well. He said, at the end of his life, all John Owen was waiting for was Jesus. Maybe that's right where God wanted him wouldn't be pleasant to walk around and see our friends who had been executed for their faith, their bodies rotting. wouldn't be pleasant. But it might help us focus on what matters most. We live in the age of distraction, don't we? The age when there's so much else going on. But the fact is, more people will need to give their lives to validate the gospel and display that Jesus is more glorious than what? Than a long life. Jesus is better and more glorious than a long life. Jesus is better and more glorious than freedom. Jesus is better and more glorious than fame and power or career achievement. But the fact is that we're not being asked to give our life, most of us. We're not being asked to serve in prison a long, a long sentence because of our faith. In fact, we're not even being asked, most of us, to give up our career or give up a position of, of power or influence in the culture. And yet here we are in the easiest culture in the history of the world to be a Christian, and we're asleep. We're like everyone else. We're drunk on entertainment or sex, money, right? This love of distraction. And here's the deal. If, if we can't say yes to Jesus and no to Netflix or no to video games ruling us or no to Instagram or no to porn, then why would we think when it was life or death we would choose Jesus? I mean, th this is a sobering vision, and it's meant to be a wake-up call to the church. Wake up, people. There are more yet who need to give their lives, and it might be you. So quit fooling around with whatever you're fooling around with. And that doesn't mean that, that there aren't ways to enjoy those gifts of God, right? To enjoy them appropriately. But frankly, it, we just have to be aware that in our culture, we're going to be tempted to worship our culture's gods. And the sad thing is in the church today, in the American church today, uh, we know statistically with pornography, but we could say it with everything. I don't, I don't know what the statistics are with Netflix and Instagram or whatever, but I know the fact is that, that minute for minute we spend... We spend way more time on social media, on Netflix, and playing video games than we do in pursuit of Jesus. And it shows. It shows in what we value. Get ready to give it all. God's mercy is laced in this fifth seal. I just want to highlight it in three ways before we get to the last part here. But first of all, justice is coming. Remember Romans 12, 19, vengeance belongs to the Lord, right? So there's actually comfort for us if we suffer and if we have to give our lives for the Lord, there's comfort. We know justice is coming. So we would not die in vain should we need to die for Jesus. Praise be to God. Now, vengeance is his, it's not ours. Just side note, right? So we don't get to determine that. We don't get to say what is just or what is right. That's God's prerogative, not ours. But secondly, another way we see God's mercy here is when he says, rest a little while longer. I just love that picture. I mean, sometimes on this side of heaven, like we're looking at that, we're going like, it's so, we're so frustrated, so angry. Like, why isn't it fixed? And why can't we do this? And who's going to avenge? You know, we just get so worked up over it. And it's just, the Lord says to these, to these saints who have paid it all, and they say, how long, Lord? You're going to make it right. And, and he says, it's okay. 
just rest just a little while longer. Because for saints to give it all, when they are in the presence of the Lord, they are at rest. So we, we shouldn't misunderstand and think that they're like somehow frustrated in heaven. Nobody's frustrated in the presence of God in that sense, right? So that their, their faith in the Lamb is a reason they can rest, which is also a reason, by the way, that we can walk by faith because we trust the same Lamb. Third, third evidence of God's mercy here, it's the white robes. The white robes. I keep telling you, you look good in Jesus. Like, white robes of victory and, and righteousness. And so to give up what everybody else thinks is everything in life, long life, freedom, all that stuff, to give that up and to die for Christ, you didn't lose, you would win. That's the picture of the white robes. And it's God's mercy even for those who, again, have to love not their lives to the very end. History is in the hands of the Lamb. So how long is it going to be? Five more minutes. Watch the sixth seal. Verse 12. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its place. If you just pause there, all those terms the, in the vision, all the, you know, basically all creation getting you know, shaken like a snow globe, all right? So what is that all about? Well, this is all language that's taken from the prophets, mostly from Isaiah. And this language refers to the final judgment of the world. And so here in the, in the sixth seal, we have God finally judging the world, the great day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord, it's called in the Old Testament, right? Verse 15, what happens then to, to those on the earth, those who haven't trusted in Christ? Verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Just side note, okay? There's only one reference there to those who aren't wealthy or successful, be every slave, right? But the fact is, all, those, all the rest of those names, the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, those are all the people who are being successful at the expense of the church, right? That's, that's the reality there, okay? What are those people all doing on the, the day, the day, the great day? Well, they're hiding in the caves and among the rocks. Verse 16, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The answer, not them. This picture, right, in the sixth seal, this is the first description of what is probably three or maybe four descriptions of the great day, of the day of the Lord's wrath, okay? The day that God will judge the world. This is the first of many that we'll see in Revelation. What is, what's the point here? The point is that this day is coming. What will happen in that day? God will judge the world. And so those who have abused, those who have been the agents of injustice, those who have refused to bow the knee in submission to Jesus, and those whose sins are not paid for by the cross of Christ, they will receive the full wrath of God for their sin, and they will have nowhere to hide. They will be so scared, they will be begging the mountains to fall on them, to, to protect them from the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. This is a sober picture. Now, you need to know, and we're going to get this explained more fully next week in chapter 7, but this is not for the church. The church, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are protected from this wrath. But nonetheless, this day is coming, and that is meant to give us both comfort as we suffer in the short run, and also to serve as a warning to those who are not ready for that day. You know, it's ironic in our culture's obsession with the concept of injustice— that we have no stomach for God's pure judgment. We're all about injustice when it suits us. We're all about injustice when it advances our cause. But what about when it's pure judgment? We don't want to think about the fact that God will judge the wicked forever. We don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about the fact that if your sins are not paid for by the blood of the Lamb, that you will rightly answer for those sins. 
So there's a warning here. Listen, we don't need to apologize for God including this in the Bible, okay? Our culture is so uncomfortable with it, but we have to call it what it is. Our culture needs to hear, we need to hear that God is going to judge. The great day is coming. And that should give us comfort when we see injustice and like we attempt with certainly um, failed, imperfect, you know, imperfect you know, means to try to address injustice. We can't fix it all. How could we? But God can and he will. There's a warning here for those who are in rebellion against God. And, and frankly, this morning, maybe it's you. Maybe you're here and you are in rebellion against God and you know it. Maybe you're in loud rebellion against God. You're vocal about it. You haven't trusted Christ and you don't want to. Or maybe you're here and you're in a quiet rebellion against God. You kind of navigate life. Everyone thinks you're walking with the Lord, but you know that you're not. You don't make a big deal about it. You don't want to talk about it. Well, there's a warning here. When the great day comes, you won't be able to hide. And so this, it's sober, right? But also, in this expression of God's wrath, there is one more opportunity for God's grace. Why does God tell us this is going to happen? Because he wants to continue to advance the cause of the gospel. So if you're here and you're in rebellion against God, I would encourage you today to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Right now, do it. Because we do not know the date of this. We don't know know when it's going to go down, but we know that it will. And you don't want to be the one calling out for the rocks to fall on you to hide you from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice the very end of verse 17. They're they're asking those rocks to fall on them because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Again, they aren't. But who is able to stand? Okay, a little spoiler alert here. We're going to give it away. Actually, we're going to find out a little bit again next week in chapter 7. But who's able to stand? Well, it's those who belong to the Lamb. I mean, yes, it's the Lamb's wrath as He makes wrongs right, as He judges wickedness and evil, as He puts a bow on all of of history, right? And He restores creation to what it's meant to be. Like, it's the Lamb's work. And those who belong to the Lamb, they will not be judged by Him. We will reign with Him. There's our hope. And it's the blood of the Lamb that satisfies the wrath of God so that when God looks at us on that day, and He will, right? When God looks at us, He doesn't see sinners who need to be judged. He sees saints in white robes whose sins have been paid for. Not because they earned it. Not because they did a bunch of good deeds. Not because they gave a lot of money to worthy causes. Not because they went on mission trips. Not even because they died uh, witnessing about Jesus. No, solely because they trusted in the Lamb who died for their sins and rose from the dead. Those are the ones who will be able to stand on that day. Because on the cross, justice and mercy meet. Now this day of judgment, it vindicates the church and our faith Even when we are suffering, even when we are marginalized, even when we are made fun of, even when we are abused, when we're laughed at, even if we would be imprisoned and executed. We can endure it because we know because of the Lamb, we will win. So are you ready to give it all? In 2010, there was a medical team, a Christian medical mission that was happening in Afghanistan. Um, One lady on this team, her name was Cheryl Beckett, she had been there six years, and they we're headed up to a northern area of Afghanistan to, again, it's a medical mission. They're doing it out of love for the Lord, but they're just going in there. They're just doing basic medical stuff, you know. Um, see, it was a team of like 10 people. They're on the trip up there, and of course, uh, along the way, um, they were ambushed by the Taliban, and they were accused of being spies sent to spread Christianity. That was the official statement from the Taliban. They were spies sent to spread Christianity. When they captured them, they immediately took them into the woods and shot them one by one, killed them all. This is in 2010. Cheryl Beckett was one. She would never marry or have kids. She would never enjoy her favorite restaurant again. 
or celebrate Thanksgiving with her family. Her murder was evil, but her death was not in vain. Today, she is at rest, awaiting the day of the Lord. You see, she didn't lose. We're not going to see her in glory and find her sad that she never drove a Tesla or she never got the newest iPhone. And she's not, she's not sitting there under the altar weeping for the family she never had or the holidays she missed. Why? Because Jesus is better. Because he is. And, and frankly, we have to ask the question, do I believe that he is better? And if I really believe he is better, am I willing to walk? Yes, that most extreme road that may mean that I have to choose to follow Jesus to death. Absolutely. But maybe more realistically this morning, let's track that back a little bit. Am I ready to walk just this little part of the road where I say no to the gods of our culture? And I push back a little bit and I say, you know what? It's just got to be Jesus first. He's what matters most. In the end, she lived her life to the fullest. And she conquered. The question is, will we? Are we ready to give it all? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for... There's just a lot here, Lord. We thank you for this passage. It's a sober reminder of the brokenness of this world. But Lord, a comfort as you remind us that you are sovereign over it. Lord, it's also a sober recognition of the need for some to give their lives for the gospel. And Lord, it's uncomfortable for us to even ask this, but Lord, we ask that you would prepare us to be your faithful servants who are willing to die for your glory. Lord, we, we thank you that practically speaking, in our circumstance, that's not really an, a present threat. But Lord, maybe that brings up our, our struggle all the more, that we love comfort and ease. And maybe we're just not thinking seriously enough about following you because it doesn't cost us much to follow you. Lord, I pray as this exposes our hypocrisy, and Lord, we think about the ultimate day of judgment that's coming, and we thank you that you will make all wrongs right. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to trust you by faith, with patience, to say, vengeance is yours. And so in the meantime, Lord, we're simply called to faith-driven obedience, to, to follow you, to trust in you. And Lord, we just ask for your help in that. Lord, I pray for those who, who have not trusted you. I pray they would be warned by this passage. Lord, as we face different kinds of suffering and different kinds of hurt, we pray that as a, as a church living in the broken world, that we would go back to this guide and remember that you are at work. That, Lord Jesus, you do hold history in your hands. And therefore, we can follow you and be faithful to you unto the very end. Lord, help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.